0: Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with a relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it, or in this case, what we're listening to. Bob Dylan's More Blood, More Tracks features previously unreleased takes of songs that would form his landmark 1975 album, Blood on the Tracks, while another recent release is the new remixed edition of the Beatles' 1968 album that came to be known as the White Album. Is this just the music of yesteryear trotted out for the nostalgia set, or can this music still be vital and fresh for modern ears and minds? After our recent conversation on Orson Welles and how the contemporary entertainment industry is treating the history of Hollywood, it seemed worth a look at how the legacy of popular music fits into the current media landscape. So I'm joined by Times music reporter Randy Lewis, pop music critic Michael Wood, and Times television critic Lorraine Ali, a former music editor here at The Paper. Let's listen in. Randy, you actually wrote stories for The Paper about both of these releases, More Blood, More Tracks, and the the new version of The White Album. Is it significant at all that these two sort of pillars of the classic rock era had these kind of spiffed up new versions coming out right now? What do you think it means that these two albums are coming out right now when they are? It means it's the fourth quarter, and it's
1: uh, (laughs) time to buy (laughs) presents. This kind of archival release is common toward the end of the year. Last year, it was the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper and Bob Dylan they put out a box set of his gospel years from the late 70s so these these things have become more Um, de Regehr every year and we we see lots of them and of course because the Beatles and Bob Dylan are the iconic artists that they are they're kind of at the top of the heap but uh, people are going through the archives there's a 50th anniversary beggar's banquet uh, released this year by the Rolling Stones there's Kinks albums David Bowie albums just a real deluge this year and I, I think part of it is because it seems like we may be coming to the the end of the era of physical product whether that's the case or not, I don't know. But it's also this is one of the few ways that musicians, record companies can get people to plunk down money for music as opposed to paying nine ninety nine for their streaming service.
0: Michael, we were talking before we started recording about how these releases, some of them are on. Amazon. Some are on Spotify. Some are on iTunes. Like, what do you make of that? The sort of like the life of archival releases within the sort of new streaming environment? Does it feel different than it did 10 years ago when things would have just come out as like just a CD box set?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's like what Randy says. I think the decision where these releases end up kind of shows what the idea is. So if you can't stream this thing easily, the Dylan sort of super deluxe that has all the like OG renditions of the songs that end up on but on the tracks, you can't easily stream those, which I think goes to show that like maybe the main sort of impetus here was to sell some box sets, maybe less to like get the music heard. It strikes me that the Beatles box set, is easily streamable. So then you think, okay, well, maybe there's like an earnest attempt here to sort of have this music heard by people that haven't heard it. I mean, now is the casual Beatles fan going to sit through 75,000 demo versions? Unlikely. But I appreciate the desire to sort of get the music out into the the
0: bloodstream. Because Lorraine, do you ever ask yourself like who this stuff is for like is this just sort of like the last vestiges of like boomer nostalgia for a bygone era or like is there actually something new to be gotten for music fans from releases like these
3: Well, I would have probably said 10 years ago it was for boomers, you know, the box sets that were coming out and you know, I I definitely criticized it like, "ugh, you know, here we go again." But now I think it's it's a little different. I mean, these particular ones that you're talking about right now maybe are more like Michael said, you know, for like the real insider fan. But if you look at just culture on a wider way, like Bohemian Rhapsody, the film, like A Star is Born, there's this idea of that era being a sort of like touchstone for all of us, not necessarily just for boomers. Like, why does my 15-year-old son like the Beatles? Why does he like... ELO, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire, because it's different than what's now. And he doesn't have those trimmings on it like, oh, it's a boomer nostalgia thing. It's like, wow, this is a really different sound because it doesn't sound like Major Laser, because it doesn't sound, you know, like the stuff that he's hearing, Ariana Grande. It's like, this is a very different sound. So, In a way, I think it's not so much about nostalgia on that end, on the larger cultural angle. Now, when you're talking really specifically about these box sets with extra trimmings, Michael and Randy and I were talking earlier, and you guys brought up a really interesting point that there's all sorts of things on here that were like, how do I say this? If this were now, artists are just unloading everything online, right? And Michael, you had said this is actually a chance where you can hear stuff you haven't heard before and it's been held back for so long and it feels really special rather than it all being just, like, vomited out at once. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's interesting. You think about, like, okay, so when it comes out to the 50th anniversary of, like, Lil Peep's first album, (laughs) there won't be any box because he put it all out as he was living, you know what I mean? Now there's, like, these natural repositories for all this stuff, which is SoundCloud or Spotify or YouTube or whatever. So there is no, like, the whole sense of, like, an artist curating his or her, you know, public sort of notion, it's just so different now. Nobody's holding anything back. It, I mean, it makes you wonder, though, like, in 1968, like, what were people holding back, you know? I mean, I've read a fair amount about this Dylan box, and it's, like, the sort of way that he had this, like, initial version of the album, and then he sort of said, uh, I don't want to do this. I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about, like, what how people sort of perceived their own
0: the way that they were curating their image and how much that's changed because of technology. So you think that sort of the the mystery that has surrounded Blood on the Tracks for all these years, people knowing there was these sort of like versions that hadn't been released, tracks that you, we hadn't heard, that they, in a contemporary environment... That would never happen in the first place. You would have just released all the versions.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, what is, you know, what is even an album? I mean, not to get to whatever, but like, that's, what does that even mean? You have artists now who make a humongous public sort of splash without even ever having released some sort of album. They just release loose songs that sort of tell that evolution in real time. Do you know what I mean? I think artists are so much less careful about how they're presenting the story of their own evolution,
1: well, I think the options are just much broader today. I mean, there are artists that still care about, I want to, I want to make an album that sort of takes a listener on a journey with, you know, beginning, middle and end. And there are other people that just go, I, you know, I've just written this song. I want it out now and they can do that. And in, in the past, it was very geared. And controlled by the record labels, we have a release schedule, you know, we need to give us a, a single that's going to be released six weeks before the album to pave the way. And that's just the way everybody did it. And then you went out on tour for a year or two years and supported that album and then started it all over again. But today, people put anything out at the drop of a hat, Yeah, and it's a much more spontaneous thing. In the day, it was, you know, you were very geared toward what is going to be the final product. And there there was no concept of archival releases or that somebody's going to be looking at this stuff down the line. I interviewed Art Garfunkel one time when they were putting out a, a, a Simon and Garfunkel retrospective. And he said, well, there's a reason we called them outtakes. Mm. And a lot of artists were, this was not the stuff we wanted released. This was not the, the way we... Had a finished product in mind, and there's kind of that battle. I went to Abbey Road to explore this Beatles White Album remix, and talking to Giles Martin, the son of George Martin, the original Beatles producer, said there there's kind of two camps that that he's you know he's he's got to play to, and one is the Beatles camp, which essentially saying you know we put out what we wanted to put out, and why are we doing this other stuff? And then there's the Beatles super fans who want every shred of tape they ever touched. So in this case, he came up with 50 outtakes from the sessions that led to the White Album, plus these demos that were compiled at George Harrison's house called the Esher Demos. So it's a slew of stuff, but it's not everything. And there's still more in there. There's a 13-minute version of Helter Skelter. There's still a 27-minute version lurking in the archive somewhere that a lot of Beatle super fans going, why didn't you give us the 27-minute version? So, you know, there's some people that are never happy.
3: (laughs) But I think the idea, like, it's interesting, Randy, because you're saying the idea that, you know, back in the day when they're doing this, they're not thinking like, okay, this is going to be for, you know, a legacy package. This is going to be, you know, we need to be legacy artists because, of course, nobody knows what's going to happen. But it is interesting that, like, There was an idea of building a career back then. There was an idea of like building up a career. It didn't have to like happen in one quick shot, right? But I think also with all these outtakes, you have to like remember that the audio was all they really had. It wasn't like you had videos. It wasn't like you really had, you know, of course you didn't have the internet. You didn't have social media. You didn't have any other way to sort of form the image of you out there. So it is all audio. So it is all really what happened in the studio, mostly, and of course, playing live on stage, But and maybe an album cover or two. But, you know, it's everything relied on what happened in that studio. So it's so interesting to hear how much more was put into those moments rather than spread out across all these platforms.
0: Well, I'm really interested in whether any of you feel like these new editions of these two records in particular, does it change your opinions or your feelings about these records? It, it's interesting to me, Randy, in your interview with Giles Martin, that he and in other interviews I've seen with him, he seems very invested in, in some ways, changing the narrative of the White Album. That if that's been the Beatles record where, like, they weren't getting along and they were essentially working in separate studios and making a basically solo records so that all came together. And that's why it's a double album. And George Martin, in particular, had always said, oh, it could be winnowed down to one really great single album. And Giles seems to really be pushing back against that in how he's been talking about the record. He likes to emphasize that they were getting along, that they were collaborating and that this in many ways is a live band record. Do you? How do you feel about that? Do you feel like he's somehow changing what our impression of the White Album is meant to be? It's altered my perception of the White Album and,
1: and I think, you know, just in thinking about it, looking at it again, I, I think it is... Easy to use the perspective of the rearview mirror, and we look back through the experience of "Let It Be," which was captured on film, and you do see the differences, the you know antagonisms rising up, and it's easy to carry that back and go, "Oh, that must have been happening here too," because in reality, Ringo did quit the band for two weeks in the midst of it. Nobody said anything at the time. Their chief engineer, Jeff Emmerich quit, walked out on him and said, you know, this is too much. So there was tension going on. But the interesting part to me is that uh, Giles was, was saying, you know, we went through the tapes and, you know, I was looking for that because if, there was evidence of that, I wanted it on here because there's an obligation to present the story as it really was. And he said, it just wasn't there. Maybe it just wasn't there on the tapes. Maybe they did all their arguing off mic, you know, that's possible. And Ringo came back to the band, you know, they continued, they finished it up. But my perception of it is, you know, the common hit was the the white album was four solo albums. It wasn't a Beatles album, but I, I think just looking at the whole story in context, and that's what we get from these box sets is the context. There was just this explosion of creativity for them, not that they were you know, ever slackers, but having gone to India, all these songs just sort of came spewing out of them. And they were just boom, boom, boom. They were trying to get them down on tape as fast as they could. So they were using two, three, four studios at the same time, not because they couldn't get along, but because that's just, you know, Paul's got this song. He wants to get it down. Uh, John and George are over here working on this song. You know, Ringo's playing drums on something else. And so this was the process of trying to pull this together for the next album, whatever shape that that wound up taking.
2: But I think you can see, like, there's a way in which these boxes reinforce an established narrative, right? Like, so with the Beatles, if the White Album is thought of as this sort of glorious grab bag, which is, that's what I like about the record, it's noteworthy that this is the one where they decided to kind of, like, spill out all the demos right because it's sort of showing the improvisatory spirit of the record i think so it's it's sort of the beatles confirming what we've already thought about you know confirming or elaborating it's sort of extending an established narrative which is like oh yeah this is the one where they were just
1: trying it trying it all do you know what i mean And their process was changing, evolving as everything else in their world was. You know, initially they would write songs, they'd go out, they would woodshed them in live performance after live performance, you know, bang them out, get them perfect in in the clubs, on stage, then walk into the studio, bang, we got it on tape. Yeah. Now they've quit touring in 1966. They're totally in the studio. This is where songs are now being, you know, created, uh, conceived, yeah. gestated, delivered, and, you know, brought into life. And and so this is now a whole new process. Therefore, there's that much more archival documentation on the whole process.
3: But don't you think also, you know, putting these out at this point, what are we, 50 years later, you know, you're saying it's, it's, it's reinforcing a narrative, which I, I, I agree with, but it's also continuing like a big mythology around it. In other words, You've had a chance over the last 50 years to buy this record, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but if you're coming in new to this or if you just don't, you know, if you're a casual listener but you're kind of interested, it kind of builds out a new mythology around an established narrative, right? So it's like, oh, there's there's more around it. You know, it sort of like gives it a kind of fresher feel. And I know that sounds obvious, but when you're talking about something like the Beatles or Dylan, where, you know, as a music critic before, I would roll my eyes and go, oh my God, you know, what new can we find here? Well, yeah. here it is.
0: Naively, I don't maybe understand the process of what someone like Giles Martin does well enough. To, I don't necessarily understand remixing versus remastering. Nobody material. does. <laughs> the materials that he was working with to make the White Album, an album I personally have owned in other different iterations, but this sounds fresh clearer there are things i have not heard before from those original master tapes like what is how does that happen what is he working with or what is he doing to give us this kind of new version of a 50 year old album yeah. well in a nutshell the, the the remix is more of an elemental
1: going back to the component parts, starting with those and bringing them out in a new way and mixing them, blending them in a new fashion. So the goal is we don't want to totally change the record. They could take out all the lead guitar and keyboards and make it a bass and drum record. But that's sort of missing the point. But a remaster basically cleans up the existing final version that the Beatles created way back then. This time, he's going back to the original tapes and rebalancing things. So, back in the day, you had to worry about having too much bass or drums on a record because it would make the needle pop out of the vinyl. Today, systems are a lot better and most systems don't have needles or turntables.
3: Really? I had no idea. (laughs) Seriously? The needle pop off the vinyl?
1: Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You had to tone down the the bass and the drums because it just physically in carving the groove into vinyl, it would make a huge groove and it could pop out. So, See,
3: new stuff. all the time. That was a factor
1: that, that they had to, to deal with. So now we get to hear maybe a little more of sort of the music that they were making in the studio and the balance that they might have gone for had they been able to do that originally.
0: Michael, do you find that these songs sound fresh to you? In particular, there's one long, long, long that's a George Harrison song that I had never really thought much of. It seemed to me one of the typical, like that song could go type songs. And on this new version, it's opened up, it sounds different. To, it brought to mind for me, like it wouldn't sound out of place on a recent, like Father John Misty record. Right. And I don't know if to you that's part of the point of a project like this is to bring these songs to the present. It's been a long-
2: I feel like I'm I'm like Tinny or Johnny. Like I don't, the, all these sort of changes make very little impact to me. I don't know, maybe it's just the way I listen on earbuds or worse, just out of the like small speaker on my iPhone, which is like horrific to many people, I'm sure. But like, I don't know this, to me, the remastering, remixing, that all seems like voodoo that you want to believe because you want to believe it. You want to justify the fact that you've spent X number of dollars on a new record. I don't know. That's always what makes the least impact for me. But I don't discount the fact that the way we listen changes and it makes sense to technologically adjust the music to account for those new ways.
1: Well, I, I like it. I enjoy it a lot. And that particular track that you mentioned is a great example on this. And as it happens, that's when I interviewed Ringo about his feelings about doing this, going back and revisiting this stuff. And, you know, are, do you feel like that they're, you know, repainting the Mona Lisa or are they actually, you know, clearing dust off it? And he said he loved that track because you really, it's, it's really becomes this kind of, It's a conversation between George and Ringo. The drums are so important in that, and they really come forth in this song. And you hear that give and take, you feel it more, to me. And that's the interesting thing about doing these remixes and and trying to balance them. I, I think there's a sense that people will put on records from the 60s, and a lot of times it sounds like a 60s record, and for Contemporary listeners, it's a turnoff in some ways that, that they can't get into it because it doesn't sound like what they're familiar with. So, this is a way to kind of, you know, bring it just into the conversation so that the sonic vocabulary is relevant to people today. You know, a big part of this, I think, is just the natural process that we as music fans go through. You, you know, grow up listening to something when you're young, and this turns you on to something else there there's a discovery process and you go back so when i listen to the beatles or i listen to the rolling stones and they played you know these old songs it's like oh what is that who is this you know b gordy guy or uh, s robinson that's credited on one of these early songs who is m waters on the rolling stones record and you go back and you listen to those now there's a definitely a romance to—now I'm listening to 50s blues records out of chess in Chicago. This leads me to Robert Johnson, you know, recording in Texas, Delta Blues. That's a whole other thing. And it has a different sound, a different quality to it. There's a mystique to it, like Lorraine was talking about, a, a greater mythology about who were these people. Right. And yeah. you know when the Robert Johnson recordings first surfaced in the in the '60s, it was like, ooh, this is you know voodoo stuff,
3: right? And they, it's like, who were these people? And it's like they're way more interesting than people now, right? You're just pretty sure they are. But also, and so this fifty is a,
1: years later, the the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan and the Kinks are more interesting in a lot of ways than people that we see. You know, we see every shopping trip they go on every backstage concert moment they have we see it on their Instagram and on you know Twitter and their Facebook and and there is no mystery
0: But it's interesting I mean this debate is happening in the world of film preservation where there recently was a 50th anniversary release of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 a Space Odyssey and very specifically the filmmaker Christopher Nolan was involved and they very specifically were trying to replicate the experience if you had gone into a theater to see that movie on the day that it opened opened in the 60s and what would they want to to feel as if you were seeing the same thing and with releases like this with the work that's been done on the Beatles album it kind of brings up that same debate because in some ways if you li- want to listen to it in its truest form you'd presumably be listening to like a mono LP but having these sort of remixed remastered you know streaming mp3s is obviously not something you wouldn't even have had that terminology in 1968 but is it different is it better like what do you think it does to the experience well i think it just expands the experience
1: and gives you more context as in in like the super deluxe box of the white album for example there's a blu-ray disc for those people who have blu-ray players and they have a high resolution transfer of the original mono mix of the record so you can listen to that and then you can listen to the new mix and go you know, is this more interesting? Is it better? What do I like? But it gives more context.
2: What is Nolan's, who cares? Why is it meaningful to him? What, what does the experience of experiencing the thing
0: as it was meant to be experienced, what, what is his take on why that matters? I think essentially it's the hand of the artist, that that is the way that it would have been created in the technology of its time, what that experience would have been like if you were an, essentially time traveling back to being an audience member at that moment. Mm-hmm. and experiencing what those film artists were able to achieve with the technology of that time so that it's not scrubbed up it's not mm-hmm. high res it mm-hmm. is kind of as it was meant to be in its initial moment and that just that is something worth experiencing in his view well i think it's one of those things
1: like if if you were around in the 60s and you saw 2001 you know when it came out before the it was hyped and became this cinematic classic you were blown away in the same way that people who first walked in to see Star Wars, like, you know, your eyes popped. And, you know, this experience, which is, I think, something that, that Nolan prizes and other filmmakers prize. It's tough to do because then you have to forget everything that's happened since then. And is it possible to go back and have that pristine experience? Essentially, no.
3: But I think there's room for, you know, all those different experiences, essentially, because you're talking about appealing to lots of different generations, so, yeah, if you want to go back to whatever the purest moment was in the beginning, you know, there's a generation that wants to see that. And maybe some people that are throwback to that generation that have a sort of romance with it. But, you know, then there's also—let me just throw something really deep into this conversation. Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> was, you know, a Parliament Funkadelic meant to be listened to while people were fighting monsters in outer space? Probably not. But, I mean— It is another way to sort of listen to the music, and there's probably a bunch of remasters, and there's probably the original thing. There's not probably there is. It's just a bunch of different ways to get into the same thing. I don't know. I think there's
2: kind of room for it all. But it also gets to the question of, like, what are you trying to reproduce? The exact technological specifications of something or the emotional mind blowing experience of thing. I came in here wanting to bring this podcast to Mariah Carey. And so now I'll do it. (laughs) A couple of years ago, I talked to Zoe Deschanel because she'd made a Christmas record. And she was talking, she redid with her group, She and Him. She redid Mariah, All I Want for Christmas is You. And her position was that I'm going to take this song that Mariah did as like this technological, super automated Pro Tools, yada, yada, and take it back to something more like, quote unquote, authentic or true or original or whatever. And she was like, because that's that's more meaningful to me. And I was like, well, but okay, so what about, what is the song giving you? The reason that the Mariah song blows your mind is because of how perfect it is, because that was the technology that was available at the moment. And so like with 2001, I would say, if you experienced it now as it could have been experienced in 67 or 68 or whenever it came out, like that's no longer going to give you a mind blown feeling, right? Because that technology now is rudimentary. So In other words, I guess what I'm coming around to in a weird way is like, actually, I'm very pro these remix, remaster, because then it's like, then you can have your mind open to something using the technology of the day, which ultimately, to me, seems more important than honoring the original spirit of the thing, right? Like, if you can throw on this Beatles record and have your mind blown in the way that someone would in 1968, that actually does seem kind of valuable in a weird way.
3: Yeah, and I think also the idea that, you know, the stuff... Whatever it is, if it's the Beatles, if it's 2001, if it's the White Album, that it's not like in some vacuum sealed container, you know, like this is from this time. Because, you know, I don't think the artists would even want that. I mean, don't you want it to be alive? Don't you want it to be passionate? Don't you want it to breathe? And I think having things remastered with new things on there, new bits, whatever it is that gives it a new life. And I think that's sort of the very idea of what you wanted in the first place.
2: Although I don't share his view, Randy, I was struck by the quote from Ben Montench in your Beatles piece where he sort of says, I, I don't want this. I don't want to
1: be remixed. And, and there there are, you know, I think it's a valid argument. I, I don't share it. But Ben Montench from The Heartbreakers, I was talking to them about this coming out just before it came out. And you know, they both said we're dying to dive into that and hear all the, the Esher demos and the sessions, the outtakes. But Ben Montage, keyboardist for The Heartbreakers, said, I'm not interested in a new mix. I, I want the record that I fell in love with. You know, I don't need to hear, you know, more bass and drums on an Elvis record. I don't need to hear more guitar fidelity on a Robert Johnson record you know, I want the original record that the artist created. So, you know, that's the other side of the coin. In this case where you you were talking about what's more important, the the technology of the field, Giles Martin is very big on, he's about the feel of the record. There were some specifics that he talked about that were interesting, saying like the guitar, John Lennon's guitar, the finger-picked guitar on Dear Prudence. He said, you know, it always felt like You know, it was this very prominent thing when you listen to the record, because when I actually listen to the original tapes, it's not that big. So I was going more for the feeling of, you know, how I remember this record sounding. And so, you know, we split it apart a little bit. So it, it takes up a little bigger sonic space in this remix version. But that it's more about how does this music make you feel than all the great technological things we can do to gussy it up.
3: you come out to play, dear
0: prudence, greet the
3: brand new day.
0: Well, I think one of the things that's so exciting about essentially the infinite inventory of like the digital era is exactly what you're saying. I mean, we can have all of these versions that I'm maybe a little more pro sort of the Nolan position, than I think you are, Michael, but one does not have to, like, zero out the other. You can have both the original mixes of the White Album and these new mixes of the White Album. Except I think that's an
1: interesting thing, too, in the era of streaming. So, like, when you go on Spotify, I don't know that you can find the original mix of the White Album now. It's like, this is the one that the record company wants right. out, and this is the one that's there.
2: I was writing a few years ago on ELO, and I was amazed to find that Jeff Lynn, notorious studio perfectionist, he had replaced the like OG ELO Greatest Hits that has like the little badge that you've seen in a million used record stores. He'd replaced that one on streaming with like a re recorded version that he made by himself, like at his home studio and you can't hear the old one on streaming anymore you can just hear his like new version of it and it's like yeah i'm fascinated by that idea of like memory holding the original thing and like supplanting it with this new version which i mean that says a lot about what kind of artist he is and i find that interesting but yeah i i think mark i'm with you i like the idea that all these things can sort of Coexist continuously, but sometimes artists say, "No, no, no, no! I'm going to like do my official official
1: version."
3: But then there's something that's inaccessible, and the hunt is on. Right, so, it's now, so exciting! Like, that... there's something I can't get.
1: What? <laughs> well, the, in the film world, you know, George Lucas recutting uh, the original Star Wars movie, and I don't know if you can pull up the old one. I, you know, I have to go back to my LaserDisc to watch the <laughs> the original version that was released for home use.
0: Yeah. It is, it is difficult, I think, to find them. I think they, the original Star Wars versions, they have had relatively recent commercial releases, but they're, like, buried deep in a box of other stuff. So it's like, you're correct, they do exist in this odd sort of netherworld, and they certainly are not available for, like, theatrical screenings. And with that, let's take a short break. You've binged the podcast. You've heard about the show. Now you can finally see the chilling true story on the big screen. Los Angeles Times Envelope Live is hosting a special premiere of Bravo's Dirty John Episode 2 on Tuesday, November 27th at the Montabon Theater. It's a must-see event, including a Q&A with actress Connie Britton, the executive producers, and of course, the LA Times' Christopher Goffin. Visit latimes.com slash envelope live for more information. And we're back. Now, an interesting pivot then to the Bob Dylan release, where it feels like it's less about reaching some final, pristine version, but the box set is very process-oriented. You're meant to hear how those songs developed, how he got to the versions that we know best.
3: Early one morning, the sun was shining, and he was lying in bed. Wondering if she changed it all,
0: if her hair was still red. The folks, said lives... Why, Randy, do you think that that, for Dylan in particular, is something that's of such interest? Well, I think it's
1: of, of interest to a very specific audience. And, and I think this one is more, even more than some of the recent bootleg series releases of Dylan, very much for the Dylan superfan. It delves into his creative process, which is, is fascinating. And because he is the preeminent songwriter of the rock era, you know, we want to know how his songs come together. But when you get, you know, nine versions of If You See or Say Hello in a row, that's a lot to process. And, you know, I don't know how illuminating it is to the average person, but there are moments in there that are just spectacular. There there was one where it was one of the early versions and there's just the way he sings one line and I thought wow, that's spectacular and I'm glad I have this for this, but I'm not going to be able to sit through 6 discs in one listening and, you know, get every nuance of the different versions of Tangled Up in Blue and Shelter from the Storm. So, it, it's very much for a specific audience and and I just checked the sales figures on the two recently that the Dylan came out a week before the Beatles White Album. The, the Beatles album has only been in the store for one week, but the Dylan album so far has sold the equivalent of about 27,000 copies in the Beatles in two weeks. The Beatles is 57,000 copies in the first week, which makes sense because the White Album was the Beatles' biggest selling album of the original studio albums that they made.
2: Do you have a sense, Randy, of how closely involved Dylan is in these bootleg records? Like, every time Rolling Stone writes a story, they sort of quote, like, an anonymous insider in the Dylan camp, which may be Dylan, who knows. But, like, how interested is he in these records? Have you
1: found or do you imagine? I don't find that he's all that interested in them. He signs off on them, Sure. So that, you know, they're not going to put something out that's going to embarrass him. But he's... One of these guys that the, the focus is always forward, not the rearview mirror. And the people who are close to him as publisher, as manager, oversee this stuff and, you know, make sure it's done in a quality way. And the, the record company takes it very seriously. And then the archivists like Steve Berkowitz who work there, you know, they're making sure that this, you know, all the documentation is in place and that it's all done authentically and authoritatively. But I don't think Dylan's sat down and listened to Right Six discs of this, I don't know that he's listened to three <laughs> tracks of this.
3: I have to say for me, I'm totally missing the Dylan gene, and like six discs of Dylan sounds like some kind of Abu Ghraib cruelty <laughs> to me A punishment, yes, it does well,
1: actually, I found it more interesting to me personally uh two box sets ago in the in, <laughs> in the bootleg series with the cutting edge box that tracked. The 1965-66, eighteen months, where he made the three albums of "Bringing It All Back Home," "Highway 61," and "Blonde on Blonde." I found that one really riveting to go through and just hear how he does this. The illuminating thing being, you know, he'll he'll have a song, and he'll try it as a country waltz, he'll try it as a traditional blues, he'll try it as a driving rock number, try it as a piano ballad, and you just hear the you know the the wheels turning. Inside, It's like this stuff doesn't come down in finished form to him that he's experimenting. What's the best treatment for this song, or at least for me at that moment? And there's a lot of that on the more blood, more tracks too. And I come away feeling like, yeah, he found the right ones. But there there are these moments in there where there, there are other approaches to this stuff that's equally valid and somebody else, some other musician yeah. who who's a super Dylan fan, may go, oh, I loved it when he did it as a waltz instead of, you know, in a four beat. And I'm, I'm going to do it that way.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's at their most interesting. These boxes raise interesting questions about authorship, right? Like who's in control of these bygone documents, you know what I mean? Like, you think about, like, The Prince, this sort of vaunted vault that we keep hearing about. And it's like, who's making the decisions about which records come out of the vault, right? Or you think about this Aretha Franklin, Amazing Grace. It's like literally a movie she didn't want anybody to see. Well, now she's dead, and so now we can see it. Is that an act of betrayal, in other words, like who's curating these legacies after the people involved are not around to control it? You know? Well, in a
1: lot of cases, it's it's people who can monetize, sure. Them. And you know that's that's also a great debate to have. But again, when you have in this case, we still have two living Beatles, and we have the the spouses of the ones who've who've passed on. Dylan's still alive, so he can certainly say no, I don't want that out there. But the the Prince, you know, example is is a great one. This piano and a microphone, nineteen eighty three, that just came out is, uh, you know, is mind-blowing to me, and I'm glad it's out. I, I don't know if he would have approved of it coming out, but I'm happy to have it. Yeah.
3: Well, he was such a perfectionist, you know, to the point where in interviews, you weren't allowed to tape him. You had to scrawl stuff down really quickly while he talked. I mean, I don't know. That's a good
1: way to get it perfect.
3: Exactly, right? (laughs) Oh, my God. It was terrifying, by the way. But yeah, I mean, I think in a way, like, I think about that a lot too, Michael, is it like this betraying the artist when you know, particularly with him, he was such a control freak and such a perfectionist that I can't imagine he would be okay with it.
2: No, I can't either. And to be clear, I don't. I, I have no moral guilt about that betrayal. I'm happy to betray. It's fine. But it is interesting to think about the way someone self-tailors their image, and then once they're gone, whose control is that? Who has control of that? You well, know what well I mean?
1: that's something we all deal with. You know, is, is my funeral going to be the way I want it to be, the way somebody else wants it to be? Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, these... Uh...
3: Don't worry, Randy. We'll play Britney Spears. We'll totally get it right.
1: Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) But there's this whole, you know, uh, a new cottage industry coming up. Uh, The Elvis Presley recordings wedded to the Royal Philharmonic Mm. Orchestra in England. And now the Beach Boys have done one. They put out a Roy Orbison. They did an Aretha Franklin version because here's this orchestra. And we've going, oh, there are people who want to hear what would Aretha have sounded like with this full symphony
0: orchestra. You know, would Aretha have? been excited about that? I don't know. But now this is, to bring it back to Dylan, because Lorraine, I do have the Dylan gene. Mm. That I think, one of the things that I find most interesting about this recent box set, the Blood on the Tracks box, is it, to me, simply proves that he was right in the first place. I feel like his artistic impulses in 1974, 75, and the album that he put out then, is in fact superior to some of what we're hearing in these outtakes and the initial version he had would have been kind of boring and too sad. Like, it's interesting to me to be like, huh, I think he was on to something.
1: But that's one of the fun of these things, too. You can program your own version if you want and take the different of the seventh take of Tangled Up in Blue and the third take of Idiot Wind and put it together. But I I think the alternate album that would have been was this basically Dylan and a guitar going back to kind of his creative beginning, but with all the knowledge and experience he'd had since then, you know, in the succeeding 15 years. And you could have put together this really intimate and emotionally super intense version of Blood on the Tracks. And that could have been an interesting release, you know, in in its own right.
3: I just have to say that, you um, know, I'm, I'm sorry about this, but there's something super dude Something very dude like about this conversation <laughs> and about the box sets and about you know uh reissuing rock geek, rock geek is it's rock geek you're looking for. and rock geek is often translated as dude ish. It's interesting, it's just something in my career as a music critic I ran into over and over again. It's just a different way of listening, and I just don't in a way I just don't kind of get it. I understand wanting to discover new things, I want to under but the idea of like parsing music to me kills it. It kills what I love about it. It kills the spontaneity. It kills whatever is, to me, the emotional attachment. So I almost don't want to intellectually think about it. It's it's a strange connection.
0: But then an artist like, say, Aretha, if there's a lot more out there for you to hear, do you want to be allowed to hear it?
3: I do. And it, like Michael was saying, I don't feel bad about it because like with Prince, you know, I do want to hear that. But... I don't necessarily want to parse out how it was made, what the intention was behind it, who mixed it, what, you know, I don't want to know that. I I almost don't want to know how the sausage was made. You know, I just want to feel it. I just want to feel that music.
0: And do you feel like that's something specific to the quirky synesthesia of music? Like, do you feel this way about television, about cinema? Like, is there something that you, you like your mystery in your music?
3: Yeah, and I do feel the same way about television and film, but I think music in particular, because music doesn't come with a built-in narrative. It doesn't come with something that's telling you, this is what this is. It hits you, you decide, then on the back end, whatever. Whatever their intentions were, I can learn about that later, but it's yours first.
2: These boxes have something of a sense of, like, an attempt to, like, conquer the thing, it sounds like. In other words, if we just think about it hard enough or if we just find enough outtakes we can conquer this music that maybe the whole beauty of in the first place was that it felt sort of inconquerable
3: yeah you can pull it apart and figure out how this genius was made and yeah. i understand why people want to do that i totally get it and it's valid it's just i don't want to do it you, you feel like it's studied to death
1: let me say though that when i did go to abbey road to sit down with giles martin and talk about this and they said, what do you want to hear? And I said, okay, put on Martha, My Dear, which a song I love. And just hearing it come out in this new mix, it was just a tremendously emotional experience that just, you know, made me want to cry because, you know, it sounds so beautiful. And here, I, you know, I'm kind of, you know, at the ground zero <laughs> of where this was done. And then, you know, I'm hearing a little more... More detail, more richness in this great orchestral accompaniment that George Martin, you know, cooked up for that song. And you're hearing McCartney's piano and all that. It's just like, so to me, I don't lose the emotional uh, element of it in digging in deeper. In some ways, I think it, you know, enhances it.
3: Martha, my dear, you have always been my inspiration. Please be good to me. I mean, music is so subjective. It's just, it really is, to me, one of the more personal art forms and one of the more personal forms of entertainment. I think we can all see it in like a billion different ways. And I think that's kind of what's great about music. I think
2: one thing I really enjoy is like the more perverse some of these packages, repackages get, the better. Of course like, do. <laughs> Yeah, of course. I like, I think about the Beatles love Cirque du Soleil show, right? I mean, this was like... Uh, incredibly tacky, cheap, gaudy, but also kind of amazing. And like the thoroughness with which the music was reimagined. That was Giles Martin, right? He was Giles and George Martin okay, one, yeah. did that. Yeah. Like that was such a wholesale like repackage of this music. That I love because that is like earnestly, truly trying to give you a new way of looking at this thing. Do you know what I mean? That felt exciting to me in a way that maybe like this white album box set
0: doesn't. I think with that we can conclude our talk here about the Dylan, the Beatles, and the sort of like legacy of popular music. Thank you to all three of you. This has been a lot of fun. Randy, where can people find you online? Are you on the on the Twitter at Randy Lewis Two? Lorraine, I'm on the Twitter
2: at Lorraine Ollie. Michael, Uh, I am. I mostly just retweet Mariah Carey. So, but yeah, at
0: Michael Wood. I'm at Indie Focus, and so for the Los Angeles Times Studios and the Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.